I'm the doctor. So you're the famous Sam. You're listening to Pieces of Eighth, the Doctor Who podcast that is playing by the book. We're back as we look to explore those sections of the Doctor Who universe that feature the incarnation of the Time Lord as played by Paul McGann. I'm Rebecca Chapman. And I'm Kenny Smith and you join us as we resume our quest to feature the Eighth Doctor's exploits in full novels this season. Today, we've actually got another first for this podcast, as we're actually revisiting a story which we've previously covered. As I'm sure you'll know, our fifth series of Pieces of Eighth is underway, and we're looking at the Eighth Doctor adventure novels which were published by BBC Books in the 1990s. Today, we've reached book number three, The Body Snatchers, which we featured back in season two with a chat with Mark Morris. But because we are Doctor Who fans and we have a sense of OCD about things, it would be wrong to go from book two to book four. That just wouldn't be right. So today we've extensively remixed our previous episode, keeping the original interview with author Mark Morris. But we're bringing you some bonus new content with an additional reading from the book and some all-new discussion of the novel with Matt Michael from Doctor Who magazine. But before we go any further, Becca, would you mind telling us about the back cover blurb and what it said about this release, The Body Snatchers, which was published on the 18th of August 1997 when you were... Two and a half. I was two and a half. Anyway. (laughs) It is London, 1894. Amidst the fog, cold and degradation, a gruesome business is being conducted. The bodies of the dead are being stolen from their graves, men, women and children alike, for the sinister purpose of a very mysterious gentleman. When the Eighth Doctor and Sam arrive, they are witness to a horrifying scene in the evil-smelling fog. Something rises up from the filthy waters of the Thames and devours a man, a man terrified for his life and on the run from the devil himself. Teaming up with an old friend, pathologist Professor George Lightfoot, the Doctor is determined to get to the bottom of the mystery. Together with Sam, they discover there is a far graver threat facing London than just earthly grave robbers. Deadly alien beings the Doctor has encountered before are at work, and they bring a whole new twist to the word body snatches. Beautifully read. Listeners, what you don't know is that Becca is actually a one-take wonder when it comes to these things, because (laughs) first time every time, she's absolutely brilliant. So well done you. Um, You're far better than me, because I always have to do a little edit, and hopefully people never notice, but there we go. (laughs) Anyway, normally at this point, we'd play a trailer if it was an audio release, so why don't we listen to the lovely new reading from yourself, Becca? Where can I find said reading? Well, if you listen right now, because you recorded it two weeks ago. (laughs) Oh, yes, I did. (laughs) (laughs) On the workbench before Mr Sears was not a length of timber, but a partly dismembered human cadaver. Tom couldn't help it. He let forth a thin, whooping scream, and instantly Nathaniel Sears' head snapped up. And now Tom saw something that was possibly even more unbelievable and horrifying than the axe and the blood-spattered apron and the riven corpse. What he saw, what he knew he saw, even though his mind tried to deny it, was that Mr. Sears' eyes were not even remotely human. They were pools of hideously glowing orange light, in the centre of which the pupils were no more than thin black slits. They were the eyes of the very devil. 
Too shocked to scream a second time, Tom stumbled back from the window, feeling the mark of those eyes on him, their burning, poisonous glare. Though he felt what little strength he had ebbing away, almost as if his life force was being sucked from his body, he somehow managed to turn and stagger into the fog. Now it seemed that the fog itself had become a live thing. Tom imagined yellow vaporous hands reaching out to grasp him, bloated, leering, malodorous faces forming from the darkness ahead. He flailed as the fog as he ran, with his bad arm as well as his good belly noticing the pain. More by luck than judgment, he negotiated the route through the outbuildings without mishap, and within moments was plunging down the steps that led to the towpath. However, even as he careered along the towpath itself, he knew that his headlong flight was hopeless, that the instant he had looked through the window, his life had become forfeit. No mortal man could expect to gaze into the eyes of the devil and live to see another dawn. In the equipment shed, dripping axe held limply in its right hand, the devil in the guise of Nathaniel Sears made no attempt to give chase. Instead, it cocked its head to one side and adopted a look of quizzical concentration. After a few moments, its glowing eyes suddenly flared brighter. The axe dropped from its hand and hit the floor with a clunk. Beneath the dark mutton chop whiskers that the factory owner favoured, the creature's lips began to move. It appeared to be communing with something. That was lovely. Again, a one-take wonder. Thank you. So, let's move on and hear some new content. Let's hear from Steve Cole, who was the range editor at the BBC Books. And again, although he didn't commission this one, he saw it through to publication. Hi, I'm Steve Cole. I was range editor for BBC Books' Doctor Who list back in the late 90s. You can maybe tell us a wee bit about the body snatchers and how it came to be, particularly I remember being excited, thinking, oh, Mark Morris, the horror writer, is doing a Doctor Who. Yes, I was excited when I heard that as well. Um, I can claim no staking in, in commissioning it, because uh, that was Newler who had who'd done it. I know Mark was keen. I think he'd approached the office, pointed out all the various things he had done um, to her. And, you know, I think she was pleased that it brought back not only the old monsters, but uh, Lightfoot as well. And because Nula was, was very big on bringing back fan favourites. And yeah, as I recall, it was, it was uh, you know, it was, it was a nice, uh, straightforward one to work on. I think the, the main editorial note I had on it at the time was, I think Mark had McGann getting into a modern diving suit to go exploring underwater, but I requested he make it an old Victorian, one of those big gobblehead diving suits, because I thought that'd be more true to the character and also more entertaining to have in this massively old-fashioned uh, diving costume as he goes down there. But yeah, it kind of played to uh, to Mark's strengths. You know, it's, it's a good body horror, um, also a chance to uh, explore the, uh, the private life of Zygons uh, and, uh, and and indeed Scarrisons, uh, which is something that, you know, when I came to write Sting of the Zygons much later on, I didn't want to contradict anything Mark had done, but equally you know you're, you're kind of not wanting to be too constrained by continuity either and i was aware that, that my sting of the zygons took place some years after body snatchers but many years before terror of the zygons so uh yeah i think it <laughs> it sits there part of the fun of it is that people will always work out their own theories as to how these things can accommodate each other so sometimes you can be a little bit mischievous by uh, by putting in the odd thing it's like when i put in ben and polly into uh Ten little aliens, and people were saying, "But there's a end of episode 
credits saying next episode is the 10th planet at the end of the smugglers so how do they have an adventure together and i say does that episode exist no we have a telly snap are you sure that was really you know is that telesnap being faked what's going on so i think it can be quite fun to uh, to to mix things up a little bit but yeah um it was it was nice to uh, to meet mark very organized writer pretty much has everything scene by scene uh, at synopsis stage really so he's kind of working from a document and you get what you've asked for so there's no there's no room for unpleasant surprises you mentioned sort of little continuity nods because uh, I think Paul Mars threw in a reference to uh, the body snatchers in the Zygon who fell to earth from Big Finish which was quite nice as well so they're all there one way or another <laughs> it is exactly Thanks to Steve again, and he'll be back with us in the next episode. I spy with my own lies someone over there in the corner of our console room. I hope he's not lost the page I was up to as I've been rereading the time machine. Yeah, I see them over there. Hello, Matt Michael. Come and join us. Come and have a chat. Hey, Kenny. How are you? I'm very well, but I'm not the Good. only one here. You better say hello to her as well. Oh, hello, Becca. How are you doing? Hi, Matt. I'm going to head over there and read for a bit some more of The Time Machine. Fantastic book. H.G. Wells. We love you. And join you again later. Bye, Kenny. Bye, Matt. Bye, Becca. See you soon. Matt, absolute joy to see you again and to hear you, of course. And uh, we're going to chat about the body snatchers today. Now, would it be fair to say this is an Eighth Doctor adventure that ticks all your boxes? It is. I think it was... Yes, I think it was the third um, of the Eighth Doctor Adventures, and I think they were starting to get into a bit of a swing by that point, and you were starting to understand how they were going to be different from the new adventures. Um, I think this one, it's got Zygons, it's got Paul McGann, it's very much riffing on the, the gothic vibes of the TV movie um, by referencing back to the height of Doctor Who Gothic in Series 13. So, yeah, definitely, definitely takes my boxes. Yeah, I think it's pretty much taking probably, I don't know if Mark Morris was a Doctor Who VHS purchaser. I presume he was, but back in 1988, I think it was, the two VHS Tom Baker releases that came out that year, Talons of Wang Chai Hang and Terror of the Zygons, and he takes the best bits of both and pretty much, uh, to use that ghastly term that the X Factor loved, does a mashup. And yes. brings them together. And of course, we've got Professor Lightfoot in there. And it's incredible just when you read the dialogue, you can hear it. It's so Trevor Baxter. I totally agree. Um, I think it really catches just the cadence of Lightfoot's voice. And I think having listened to 13 series of Trevor Baxter recreating the character for Big Finish, you absolutely can hear him saying some of the, the dialogue in the book. It's uncannily accurate. Yeah, I think from the word go, it, the mood is very much, as say, that Victorian Gothic, the way it's building up the scenery. It's It feels like the world of Talons, very much those dark streets, with the, the odd bit of moonlight coming through off wet, yeah. what's wet streets and things like that, with all the cobbles and things like that, and like gaslights and people dressed ragged in ragged clothing and it just very much captures that yeah it's definitely this hammer horror phantom of the opera slash hands of the ripper kind of milieu is you can you can see it in your mind's eye 
to coin a Mary Whitehouse phrase as you're reading it, it, it really does sort of leap off the page. And I think it has the... Well, one of the big differences, I think, between the early Eighth Doctor adventures and the new adventures is that I wouldn't say the early Eighth Doctor adventures are childish or written down, but they just have a different have a different tone. They're much more focused on sort of action, adventure, and evoking that kind of Doctor Who mood than trying to do stories that are too big and too deep for the small screen. So they're a bit more gutsy, I think, than some of the new adventures. And I think that's that's to their strength as well as... Um, you know the, the new adventures having a bit of a the, it has a bit more of a sort of gutsy feel to it unlike the more cerebral new adventures and you know not one's not better than the other but i think it's definitely after seven years of new adventures it's definitely fair to try something new very 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 much so because i think at the time reading them you think the first five novels have all got something that pretty much ties back to the classic series eight doctors pretty much every page then you go on to Vampire Science, so you've got the vampires, so sort of a link to State of Decay, Body Snatchers, Zygons, Scarrison, ah. Professor Lightfoot, then I suppose Genocide's got Joe Grant, so there's something there, and then you've got War of the Daleks and retconning pretty much the ending of Remembrance, so it's very much, uh, it does, and as you said, it does feel different, the books have a, maybe not quite so dense sort of feel to them, they're, mm. they're not overpacked with science fiction ideas, even, although I suppose genocide's the exception there, it does have a very typical Paul Leonard sci-fi conceptual stuff, but yeah. it still has a the human story with the Doctor meeting Joe again, and also bedding in Sam as we get to know her. Yes, yeah, and I think um, those first few books really do. I think they were not necessarily the easiest to come together but i think they really do set a different tone and set the the novels on a different uh, a different trajectory from um, the new adventures it's quite a welcome change because it does feel like on tv when you have a new production team taking over you do get a different feel to it I mean, you look at the change from season 17 into 18 and then from russell t into stephen and then stephen on to his successor and there are complete t- changes and shift yeah. And I suppose that's sort of pretty much the books reflecting that at the same time. Definitely. That's a really good analogy. It's like Graham Williams coming in after Philip Hinchcliffe. It's that kind of tonal shift and one isn't better than the other. It's just different. And I think sometimes as fans, we have to rate things against each other. There's always that temptation to try and knock one thing down to make something else look better. And actually, with retrospect and when it's no longer a kind of live debate, you can actually see both the new adventures and the Eighth Doctor adventures on their own merits and appreciate that you don't have to denigrate one to celebrate the other. That's very true. Do you think it was the right decision to go with this? Maybe it's slightly more, I don't know, I don't want to say child friendly because that's quite patronising, sounds like it's yeah. you know, for, you know, for like seven or eight year olds, but do you think it was the right thing to do to maybe make them as perhaps slightly more accessible than the new adventures had been? I do. I think, I mean, I don't necessarily think they're even that child-friendly. There's some really gruesome moments in The Body Snatchers. A lot, as you would expect from a sort of gothic horror story, there's some fairly graphic descriptions of corpses and things like that. So 
I definitely don't think it's the kind of thing that you'd want a six-year-old necessarily to to read. But I th- I think for for me the new the new adventures have kind of ploughed a particular furrow and they've done it really really well. But they've done it for seven years and I think probably there's a bit of diminishing returns if you just keep ploughing that same furrow on and on and on. Um, and I think even the, the new adventures had recognised that and t- towards their end they were trying to move away from the seventh doctor just being this all-knowing manipulator and using ace as a puppet so chris and Roz are never quite as puppeted or manipulated i don't think as as ace used to be um and the doctor is a little bit more i think obviously fallible and less all-knowing in the latter new adventures than he was in the earlier ones so i think even the the new adventures would have had to do something different in the end but like there'd been a in the uk wildly successful film in 1996 the bbc had decided to take back the license it would have been crazy for them to come off the film hopefully capitalize on its success with a new doctor by doing exactly the same thing that the the bbc had always done so i absolutely think it makes makes total sense it makes it accessible for people who've maybe seen the film and have a certain view of doctor who that might be different than the people who came into the new adventures off the back of the sylvester mccoy years and the sort of target range and i'm glad that the eighth doctor adventures exist and they did a radically different shift because it doesn't wipe out the new adventures you can still read if you afford them on ebay but you can still read both and the fact that one exists doesn't erase the other exactly i mean i remember at the time when i read the original press release saying that who the writers were going to be and seeing the name of mark morris on there and thinking blimey that's a bit of a coup as he was somebody who's recognized and as one of the foremost british horror writers and you think blimey he's doing a doctor who and to me in, in some ways it was almost like a statement of intent to say we can bring in the big name authors and we are going to offer you that something different. And as you said earlier, there is some wonderful visceral horror in there as the Zygons kill people and we have the, just going around the streets. And I think particularly the bit, and we'll hear later on an extract from the book about how one of the Zygons gets blown apart by Lightfoot firing the blunderbuss at him and he gets ripped to shreds. And just the whole detail and, oh, it's, it's wonderfully gory. And I think that, it's again, it's as you said, tapping into that sort of season 13, season 14 kind of Hinchcliffe-like gore. And I think that sort of appeals. Yeah. I mean, there's just something, I don't know what, what it is, but there's just something about Doctor Who and that Victorian period. It just absolutely works. Yeah, and it hadn't been, that really hadn't been explored very much, even in the Missing Adventures by Virgin over the last sort of four or five years that those have been running. They've done a couple of Tom Baker episode, uh, novel, sorry, set in the Hinchcliffe period, but you know things like Managua are quite are quite off the wall. They're, they're much more sort of new adventures, experimental um, than you would, anything that you would have actually got with Hinchcliffe. I think po- possibly the only one that really channels Hinchcliffe Gothic would be Evolution, one of the really early ones by John Peel. And most of most of the others try and do something a little bit oddball because they're very much in that new adventures seventh doctor mode yeah so i, th- I think the time was right for doing something different 
Yeah, and I think oh, I suppose there's also the shadow of Wang Chiang sort of does yeah. season uh, 16, but brings it into sort of gives that sort of Hinchcliffe yeah. kind of feel. So yeah, there's that as well. But I think it's for me, it's it's still one of my favourite books out of the early EDAs. Now, something that I have to ask you about is the cover. First time you looked at it, did you spot the Zygon on the cover? Because I didn't. Really? No, I did. But I don't know how. I, I can remember the cover and it's not in front of me. I can remember it very vividly, the blue Zygon surrounded mm. by the wreath with the little skulls. But do you know what? The thing that I noticed most about the cover is I think that Black Sheep used the same skulls on that cover as they use on genocide yes so they sort I spotted of that. Two, <laughs> two consecutive covers with the same i don't want to say clip art but you know what i mean the same yeah. sort of stock image of a skull and that always did not bugged me but i always found that sort of vaguely amusing it was also one of the i can't remember how many they did before they got rid of it but the first few also had little illustration on the back as well yeah. um, so i kind of i kind of remember the excitement of just those those first few books they just the, the new cover it they just felt they ha- even had a different feel than the new adventures yep. new adventures the back kind of glossy card mm-hmm. cover and these had the sort of matte yep. feel card yep. covers they just popped on the shelf compared yep. to the new adventures yep. um, i won't ask how you feel obviously matt for that kind of matte feel but uh, i'm sure you're lovely and you look nice and cozy <laughs> there with your with your blanket around you tonight yeah but yeah, I agree. Thank Definitely. You. I think it really did set them apart. And of course, this is one of the, I think it was only like the first five, maybe six books had the old BBC logo with, in the, almost like the italicised yeah. and underlined before they went to the blocky BBC logo, which only yeah. changed was it early, earlier this year at the end of last year. So it had a good run, that logo. Yeah, it did. As it Doctor did. Who fans, we're so obsessed with logos, aren't we? I love logos. Yeah. Oh, dear. And of course, the Glasgow word for... Or, police would be the polis so if you broke the law then the local polis would come around and get you <laughs> it takes a wee second that one i know sorry but yeah all in all i think the body snatchers is a great book it's, it's as you said it definitely has a different feel to where the new adventures had been and it does give you that sort of different feel it sets things up and again we get to get a bit more about sam who perhaps wasn't the best defined in the eight doctors and John and Kate did a great job in Vampire yeah. Science, bringing out more of her. And again, I think that Mark Morris did a good job here with her, considering there wasn't a huge amount to, to work with. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think the development of Sam over the, the first few books is notable. I also kind of think that Mark pulls out some more characterization of the Eighth Doctor than then maybe we might give credit for so i think there's there's bits of the book that sort of reference the seventh regeneration and how because the doctor did die and then sort of came back from death during that regeneration it wasn't just an organic one to the other process that it really sort of brought up some repressed memories and personality traits and things that he'd submerged for a long time like his passion and his joy of life that maybe become a little bit cynical and a little bit suppressed over the the past few incarnations and i think there's efforts in those early books not only to build more definition around sam but also start to build more definition around the eighth doctor and explain why and how in the tv movie he feels maybe 
different from the character that people who've been watching since 1963 might might have expected like the kissing basically yeah but then again we all have those moments in life don't we there's that joie de vivre when it returns and just think oh yeah absolutely thinking about it um how how disappointed am i that there was never a mcgann audio with trevor baxter oh because that would have been just fab yeah what a, yep. what, a, what a shame that that couldn't come to pass because that feels like that would have been fab yeah you can think that just that huge wit and the dry wit of what lightfoot the fact that the doctor would probably have teased him and wound him up a bit and yeah. um, being a stuffy older guy and particularly the way they've got this doctor who can tease a bit more with more humor yeah. but also at the same time slightly more in touch with humanity and yeah i think that would have been a fantastic pairing oh um, regrets but yeah, but that is definitely a regret actually thinking of um the doctor with jago as well yes yeah absolutely the pair of them would just have been blended um, you know it wasn't it wasn't to be and we had we had 13 amazing series with the with the two of them so. yeah and a couple of reunions with tom so we can't yeah. that. and colin as well but yeah i'm just and thinking colin. that the doctor jago and lightfoot and that that oh let me think let me think a, a tantalizing triumvirate in tales of terror and intrigue <laughs> there we go I'll, you I'll, should write for like yeah, you should write for big finish magazine or something that's really good oh thanks very much i may just write them a, a wee letter to say hey what about <laughs> it <laughs> anyway matt thank you so much for coming on once again thanks for joining us matt i'm sure we'll see you very soon bye matt bugger off bye thanks kelly <laughs> anyway, Matt's going to be back with us again very soon for a chat about the book Many Regard as the Greatest BBC EDA, Alien Bodies by Lauren Smiles. So we'll see him then. Indeed we will. So we have brought you all new content so far today. And I think it might be time to do a bit of a repeat and bring you our previously released interview with Mark Morris. That's a good idea. And also the good part is I don't need to go and edit this bit because I'm just going to drop it in from before. Here we go. My name is Mark Morris. I've been a, a full-time writer for about 30 years now. Um, I'm known primarily as a horror writer. So I've had around 40 novels and short story collections and things like that published over the years. I also edit anthologies. In the Doctor Who world, I've actually written four Doctor Who novels. I've written um, the first of which was The Body Snatchers, which is the one we're going to talk about today. And I've also written quite a few audios for Big Finish. And that's about it, I think. <laughs> That's a very neat summing up of thirty years of writing, and that's about it. <laughs> I, I could go on, and I could go on and on and on, but I won't. <laughs> Fantastic. So, what do you remember about the casting of Paul McGann? Do you remember where you were when you first heard? Ooh, when I first heard he'd been cast, do you know, I probably don't remember. I, I, I do remember feeling very, very excited about uh, the TV movie at the time. Because uh, and, and and weirdly at the time, I mean, it had been off air for what seven years, which is kind of nothing now. But at the time, it seemed like forever, and it seemed like it would never come back. So I do remember being incredibly excited, and also when you, when we started seeing sort of stills from the show and things like that, and just you know pictures of the TARDIS, and just thinking, wow, this is this is how I always wanted it to be. This is you know this is amazing. It just looks beautiful. But I, I, no, I don't remember. I don't remember actually. Uh, the moment when I heard he'd been cast, I just remember all the all the furore leading up to it and all the excitement leading up to it. 
Now, when the story was released, obviously there was the VHS release before it was on TV. Yeah. Were you somebody who queued up to buy a video or did you wait for a TV version? No, I watched it on TV, definitely. I think I got the video a day or so later and watched it again. But I definitely, I think, watched it on TV first. So let's skip forward 12 months to the summer of 1997. And the BBC Books range is launching its Doctor Who novels with the Eighth Doctor and previous Doctors. So how did you come to be involved and get the commission to do The Body Snatchers? I'd, I'd always wanted to write Doctor Who, and but, but at the time I was known for writing horror fiction and I'd had probably four or five novels published at that time. And I was actually, I was friends with David Howe, but I knew David Howe not really through Doctor Who, but through going to the British Fantasy Convention, which is a, an annual kind of convention for horror and fantasy and science fiction writers. And David at the time, I think, was writing uh, a book review column for possibly Shivers or Starburst in which he, you know, he reviewed a lot of horror novels. So I kind of knew David through through that, really. And um, and I think, uh, yeah, Virgin had done their Doctor Who books, hadn't they? And I think I'd been in touch with Peter Darville Evans, who was the editor, just expressing an interest. I don't know if I ever actually sent him anything. I don't know if I sent him any uh, story outlines or anything. I may have done, but I can't remember. And then... When obviously when the TV movie came out and BBC took the the kind of rights back for the franchise to do books, I got a call from David Howe one night, and David was acting as a kind of I don't know if he was a sort of unofficial advisor or or whether he was actually a, a, an official advisor for the range, but he said to me, you know, I know you've always wanted to write a Doctor Who book. Would you be definitely interested? Because you know the BBC are doing this thing. And I think at the time the BBC wanted, they didn't, they basically didn't want to use all exactly the same writers as Virgin had used. I think as it was, they used some and then they tried to get some of their own. They tried to get some new writers in, some different writers in. And so I said, yeah, I would love to do it. He kind of gave me details of where to send a synopsis. So I sent a synopsis in. I'd always wanted to write, uh, the, I'd loved the Zygons for many years and I'd always wanted to write about the Zygons. So I sent in a, a storyline saying, could we possibly use the Zygons? And I think at the time they were, they, were, they were sort of a bit kind of, we're not sure whether we want to use old monsters, we're not sure what rights we can get. And I said, well, I'll, I'll, send, you the, you know, I'll send you an idea and, and see where we go with it. And it kind of just went from there. And everything, I think, from then on was fairly plain sailing. I think they liked the idea. They got the, um, they got the rights to use the Zygons. They were quite happy to use the Zygons. And I just went ahead and, and wrote the book. Uh, mine was one of the very early ones. I think mine was about the third, maybe, third or fourth, eighth Doctor yet, the third Doctor, the third novel um, to come out. So, there, you know, there wasn't a lot of baggage. It was basically just the TV movie. And I hadn't even, I hadn't even seen or read the first two novels. So I just had the TV movie to go on, really. Yeah. How did you find nailing down the Doctor's character? Because given that he'd had about an hour on screen and of that, probably about half an hour of that, he's finally got his memory yeah. back. <laughs> so that must have been quite hard just yeah. to find his voice. It was quite tricky. I just had to, I just watched, as I always do, I just watched the TV movie many times, several times, just to get the feel for his mannerisms. And even in that 90 minutes or so, there was, you know, there was enough there, I think. There was enough of him on show. And it was just a case of just jotting down notes. If he if he kind of said something in a certain way or repeated something in a certain way, uh, then you would just kind of jot it down and you would kind of hang on to that a little bit. 
I think maybe later on, and, and certainly with Big Finish now, he will probably be easier to write now because, you know, there's a lot more to him. There's a lot more aspects to his character with Big Finish. So, yeah, just at the time, we just had to kind of just write all, you know, just write him as as you'd seen him in the TV show. And, I, and also just, I think, using a little bit of Paul McGann as well, because obviously I'd seen him in The Monocle Mutineer and various things. So just kind of trying to imagine him as an actor playing that role, saying the lines that you write. And I always think that's the thing is that if you write a line and you can't, you can't actually picture the actor saying it, then you need to change it. Yeah. In terms of Sam, did you get much in the way of a detailed brief and how did you find capturing her voice? Again, I think we just got, a fair, I think we got a fairly sketchy brief of what she was going to be like. And there were a bunch of writers who were writing the first batch of books think among them possibly again my memory may not be brilliant but I think Paul Leonard Kate Orman people like that there were and we and we kind of created a little group among ourselves a little discussion group about what she should be like and just kind of expanding on her character but because I was actually writing my novel because as I say my novel was one of the first ones to come out and you you know you only had about I think 10 weeks or so to write it so I, t I did tend to find after a while that I just couldn't get through all the discussions because I was literally having to write my novel. I could have spent all day every day because they were. I would every time I came back to the discussion group, there would be twelve pages of discussions about about this new character, and I would skim through them and and stuff. But I just thought, I, you know, I can't I can't dedicate all my time to this discussion about this character. I have to actually sit down and write the book. So I, I feel as though there, are, there may have been, I think there may be some things in my book that are contradicted later on. I mean, I, I don't know enough clearly about it, but I do kind of vaguely remember there was some talk about her possibly being, being such a, I think being a vegan or something and being such, so sort of, you know, to the extent where she would never wear kind of say leather boots or something. I can't remember exactly what it was. And I had her in a pair of like green Doc Martins or something. And, you know, there were, there were, I think there were a couple of things that I thought afterwards, hmm, actually that kind of goes against the character a little bit. But, you know, as with all things and as with, as with Doctor Who through the years, a lot of that is just down to, to the time that you get to do it. You know, you continuity errors creep in and often that's just down to the fact that you you don't have the time to correct them. You can't go back and do, you know, correct them in, in retrospect. If only we knew somebody who had a time machine. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, the story's set in the Victorian era, and we've also got another character from a classic Tom Baker story coming in in the form of Professor Lightfoot. That must have been a real yeah. joy to get your hands on good old George. It was. I love writing things set in the Victorian era. I've written a few things set in the Victorian era, my own fiction included. I, so I wrote a, a trilogy, a time, a time travel trilogy, one of which episodes or one of which parts, one of which books is actually set pretty much in the Victorian era. And I just find it very, I just find it a very rich and evocative era. So I do, I do love writing it. And once you've done your research, I, tend, I find that I tend to kind of flop into it quite naturally and really, really enjoy writing it. So it, it did occur to me at first, I, I wasn't sure whether to include Jago and Lightfoot. And then I thought, well, you know, if he's in the Victorian era, why would he not look them up, possibly? 
And so I thought I'll I'll sneak it in and see what see what they say. I'll sneak in Professor Lightfoot. So I thought Lightfoot was the <laughs> was the less was the kind of the the character that would kind of fit in quite nicely. I, I don't know whether maybe maybe having them both in might have seemed a little bit too much at the time. So I kind of made an excuse not to have Jago in there as well. But I just thought maybe Lightfoot might be, you know, I, I felt as though maybe they would overwhelm the Doctor a little bit, as we didn't know that much about the Doctor at the time. And so that's why I just used Lightfoot, I think. I quite like the way that you've got the Doctor saying that uh, he's not the same. They don't, they don't go into the whole regeneration thing. It's just that it's mm. sort of their, they work for pretty much the same people. And it, it's quite a nice touch. Yeah. It's done nicely. Right, thank you. I can't, you know, I can't remember what I said at the time, but I, I do vaguely remember that the in kind of, yeah, giving him some kind of excuse about him not being the same man and not trying to explain all about regeneration, but yeah. Yeah, it was particularly nice given that this was before the Jago and Lightfoot series began from Big Finish as well, and you can just hear Trevor Baxter's voice coming through with every single line. Oh, thank you. Well, Talons of Wang Chang is my favourite story of all time. And I adore those two. I think maybe, you know, at the time, I mean, I, I, as again, my memory is a little bit vague, but I think I was a little, I was even maybe just a little bit scared about writing Jago at the time. I felt maybe, maybe I wouldn't be able to do him justice. And then later on, of course, I did write a Jago and Lightfoot audio drama. And so I did finally end up writing Jago and not only writing Jago, but writing for the actual actor, putting words in his mouth. But I think I'd become I'd become more experienced as a writer by then, and I felt more comfortable and confident about writing him. Now I particularly enjoyed the setting. Did you do quite a bit of research into it, particularly because it felt so authentic to me when I could picture you know fog and gas lights and hear the clip clop clip clop as the carriages go through the streets, and you could and you yeah. could almost smell the stinking Thames as well. And then, of course, we've got an industrialist as well. Or is it an industrialist, as we yeah. later found out? Uh, no, it's not. But that must have been you know, a good period to have a good look into. Yeah, it is. I lo- I, as I say, I love the Victorian era. It's, you know, it's an era that fascinates me. And it's an era when there were many great advances were being made. So, yeah, I did do, I did do quite a lot of research. But I, you also kind of base it on a, like a, a BBC ITV version of Victoriana, you know. We've all seen Sherlock Holmes. We've all seen, well, obviously the talons of Wang Chiang and, and many other Victorian dramas along the way. So there's, there is an element, obviously, of that, of that kind of BBC Victoriana. I think, you know, Victorian England or Victorian Britain, Victorian London, whatever, was a lot dirtier and grimier and nastier than you probably depict in maybe a, a Doctor Who novel. You know, you don't go for the full kind of unpleasantness of it. But yeah, I did do quite a bit of research. I just it, it, the thing is, it's always like research into everyday things that you don't kind of you don't think about until you get there. Just little things. I think I remember at the time thinking, obviously, you knew that there were uh, you know match girls that sold matches and things, but you know, kind of what kind of matches were they? And it's just sort of all little little kind of details like that. Again, I can't remember the specifics, but I just I do remember it being about it's quite often it's about things like clothes, food, you know, how many places had electric lighting, when did electric lighting come in, were most people still using kind of gas lights and you, you know, how rich did you have to be to get this newfangled electricity? Yeah, it was all that kind of stuff. It was great, really enjoyed it. Now I particularly now this is a bit where I have to make a confession. When I got through my copy of the book, I hadn't realised that was a Zygon on the cover. 
So that came as a complete surprise to me on first read. And that was that was one of the great things in those days with the books that you could do that sort of thing. And it's like, okay, it's there if you look at it. But I just thought it was a, a creepy face. Ah, right, great. Well, that's good. I think I think at the time I I think I might have wanted it to be to, the the fact that Zygons were in it. I think I wanted that to be kept secret and for it to kind of come as a surprise to readers. But obviously, you know, that they tend to put them on the covers to try and attract more more readership. You know, Doctor Who fans might think, oh, wow, there's a Zygon. I'm going to read this one. I've done it before with Big Finish. I wrote a Dalek story and I wanted it to be a secret that the Daleks were in it. And I was going to call it, it, it was, and it ended up being called Plague of the Daleks, but I did want it to be called something else originally, something like the Ancients or something. And the Daleks only appear, I think, at the end of part two, possibly. And I, I said, can we do it so the Daleks aren't on the cover or anything? And it's just a, bit, a big surprise. And they ummed and ahed a bit and then and said, you know what, we, we always sell a lot more copies when the Daleks are actually up there, out there and up front. So, you know, it was a nice idea. But if you want to sell more copies, we're going to put the Daleks on the, on the cover and in the title. So I thought, well, fair enough. And potentially get yourself some more royalty. So there couldn't be anything yeah. wrong with that. So Something that I also enjoyed is the, the fact that the Zygons have got a lot of character to them and the fact they're maybe not quite factionalised but they're they're not all of one mind and the fact there's this is, there's yeah. dissent in the ranks that's again very much a modern Doctor Who approach in terms of their being characters rather than just straightforward ciphers yeah um, yeah that was something that, that, that I really wanted to do I really wanted to expand the Zygons expand, expand Zygon culture just to kind of look into what sort of people they are if you like and i think again you've probably read it a lot more recently than i have but isn't originally don't i originally say which has not been followed up at all in the tv show but the zygons i think are white originally they've got very white flesh and it's only through some process i can't remember that they turn orangey red i can't remember the details but i remember doing all this and there being sort of zygon scientists that were possibly slightly different and things and they've been good. Did I? Did, was it? Were there good zygons and bad zygons? I can't actually remember now. Yes, there was one good zygon, a good female zygon scientist who is not obeying the orders to kill the Doctor Sam and Lightfoot. Right. Yes. And and that nice, you know, pleasingly has become. Uh, I'm not saying that I was a forerunner, right? But but I mean, it was. It has become part of the the TV show, where aliens aren't just you know evil, or you know they're not that you don't just have an evil race. You do get good guys and bad guys uh, within species, which, you know, which is far more interesting, I think. The image that always stuck in my head with this book, you know, just like years after reading it and before I reread it a few weeks ago, is the TARDIS console room full of Scarrison. It's just such a great oh, yeah. image. Is that something that you came up with early on and just had to work it in? Because I think it's so evocative. I think so. I think I think I had the, pretty much the whole story kind of down before I actually started writing it. So I, I think I, I pretty much wanted to do that. I wanted to make the garrisons as well more ferocious, um, I think. I think there's a scene at the end where it does get quite, it gets quite gory when the Zygons are rampaging through the London streets and there's a few sort of quite horrific images in there, I think, from what I remember, which uh, I think I got a little bit of flack for at the time. Some people quite liked it. Some people thought, oh, you know, it's, it's a bit too horrific and, you know, his, his kind of horror credentials are showing through a bit too much and it's a bit too graphic for a Doctor Who novel. Oh, I enjoyed it. So I don't know what that says about me. 
I think for me, it's one. It's a, it was a really good start to the range, and it's up here's a classic monster, one that hadn't been done in the Virgin books, and it helps you know set things apart and keep things going. And do you have any favourite bits from writing it that you remember? I do you know I uh, no because I can't remember that much about it now. I remember it being a real joy to write. I remember really enjoying writing it because I just like writing about Victoriana and I and I just felt as though I, the kind of the character voices came to me quite quickly and quite easily and I remember finding it uh, uh, yeah just pleasurable to write it wasn't hard work and even the doctor you know the doctor was a bit of an enigma at the time but even the doctor I found came alive and I really enjoyed writing him Lightfoot as well so yeah, it was just a pleasurable experience do you remember if there were many changes along the way or was it pretty much once your outline was approved, that was it, go for it? I'm pretty sure there weren't that many. I don't think there were many in that one. The second one was was more problematic, I think. Um, that was Deep Blue? That was Deep Blue, yeah. I mean, I won't go into the details, but basically they, they employed an editor who wasn't an in-house editor who changed loads of stuff and, and there was a real problem with it. And then we had to go back and basically rework it all again. And well, I mean, say rework it all again. Her her edit, I think, was pretty much then thrown out because she just kind of changed things for the sake of it. So yeah, the, but but with the body snatchers, I'm pretty sure it was it was there might have been odd little line edits and things, but I'm pretty sure it was kind of kept more or less as it was when I delivered it. And it's been 24 years since it was God. published. <laughs> so. How do you look back on it now? Is it one that you've got sort of happy memories of, given that it was the start of something new, something different? Yeah, definitely. Um, it was. Uh, I was delighted to bring back the Zygons because I felt as though they'd had this one brilliant story in Doctor Who, and they just seemed ripe, you know, to come back. And they never had done. Um, obviously, they've they've been back a few times now, not only in the new series but in Big Finish and things. But at the time, they hadn't. They hadn't come back. And so it was, it was a delight to write for them. It also kind of opened the doors for me for just in Doctor Who fiction generally. You know, I went on to write uh, another one for the BBC and then a couple for David Tennant's Doctor, for the 10th Doctor. Um, and then that sort of led to writing for Big Finish and, and various other things along the way. So it's always, you know, it, it sort of opened the door and it's always nice to return to the Doctor Who universe. I, I don't do it often. I'm the sort of person where I, occasionally they'll come to me and ask me for something, but I'm not the sort of person who will constantly send in ideas because I, I, Doctor Who is a bit of a, it does devour ideas. That's the thing. And also whenever you come up with a Doctor Who idea, you can immediately think of something, a, doc, a Doctor Who story that's similar or that's had elements of, of your idea because there have been so many stories over the years. So for those who are looking for more info about your work, where can they find it? Well, bookshops, Amazon, you know, the usual places. A lot of my early horror novels are probably out of print now, so you probably have to go to eBay or, or get them on Amazon um, secondhand or get the e-books, I think. I think the e-books are still available through Galance. But yeah, just the usual places, to be honest. Yep. And what about social media? Are you on Twitter? I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. And I'm on uh, Facebook, yeah. Yeah, so people should Google you and look you up and find out what you've been up to of late. Yeah, I think Twitter is at MarkMorris10, I think. Fabulous. Mark, thank you so much for your time and joining us on Pieces of Eighth. No problem. Well, thank you. Now, as I recall, I previously did a reading from this book, which was rather graphic, especially with that sound design that you did. 
You certainly did, and I absolutely love doing that. Lots of wet, fleshy, meaty sounds and so on, and oh yes, lovely. No, thank you. <laughs> a blue haze suddenly appeared where the doctor's box had stood. Lightfoot blinked as if the haze was nothing but a speck of matter on his eyeball. However, when he opened his eyes again, not only was the haze still there, but its colour had deepened. And now a definite outline could be seen, transparent enough to see the stone wall of the towpath through it, but growing more solid all of the time. Even as Lightfoot watched the Doctor's peculiar blue box appear out of thin air, his mind tried to deny the evidence in his own eyes. The swirling, grinding bellow of massive and ancient engines filled his head until he thought he would go mad with it. And then a moment arrived when the box was simply there, as solid and real as the objects that surrounded it. Lightfoot gaped at it, his mind a stew of emotions. It was a peculiar thing to have one's wish fulfilled, wondrous and yet at the same time intensely alarming. Much to his relief, the bellow of the engines faded quickly once the object had materialised, and slowly Lightfoot rose to his feet, watching it warily all the time. The arrival of the box, momentous though the event had been to Lightfoot, appeared to have gone unnoticed by the rest of the world. All around was silence, aside from the incessant lap of water against the wall below. An age passed before the door opened, and it did so slowly, almost ceremoniously. Beyond it, Lightfoot could see nothing. It was not so much darkness as an emptiness, an absence, a void waiting to be filled. He picked up his gun and took a step towards the door on trembling legs. Doctor! He called, his voice wavering. He cleared his throat and tried again. Doctor! A shape appeared in the doorway. Oh, for goodness sake! Lightfoot gasped and took a stumbling step back. It was not the doctor who stood there, but a zygote. If it had not been for the creature's lobster-coloured flesh and its great domed head, however, Lightfoot might not have recognised it. The zygon's body was horribly misshapen, reduced, liquefying like wax in a furnace. Boils were rising and bursting all over the creature's body, and even as Lightfoot watched, gobbets of flesh were sliding from it, forming steaming pools around its feet. Only its eyes seemed alive, blazing with furious fire. A maw opened in the massive boils that served as the zygon's face, and from it came a rattling, gurgling hiss. This is not Zygon, the creature rasped. It swayed for a moment, and then seemed to notice Lightfoot for the first time. It gave a blood-curdling screech and raised its hands, unsheathing the thorns in its palms. Then, with astonishing speed considering its condition, it rushed at him. Instinctively, Lightfoot raised the gun and pulled the trigger. The blast at such close range almost tore the creature apart. Bits of it flew everywhere, its left arm spinning through the air and landing with a splash in the water below. The creature's momentum carried it forward another two steps, and then it pitched forward onto its face. It twitched for several seconds, and then became still. Now, Lightfoot expected people to come running. The echoes of the shotgun blast seemed to thrum and thrum in his ears. He looked down at his handiwork, sickened. The Zygon was crumbling to nothing even as he watched. Its rate of decay accelerated even further by its death. Gross. Love it. 
Anyway, we're grateful to Mark as well as Matt and Steve for joining us. Again, love this book. As said with Matt earlier, it's just one of my favourites. And the fact it's a Doctor Who horror novel and it absolutely works for me. Love it. It is fantastic. I am a big fan as I was when we first did this. Yeah, because you read this one at the time and because um, we had plenty of time when we were doing fewer episodes per season and not oh doing God. one a day. <laughs> what kind of nutters are we to do this? Why? Why? Oh. It seemed like a good idea at the time, but there we go. I've been telling all of my friends that you've got this uh, this strange idea that we're going to release an episode a day for December and I'm just sat there like, he must be insane! <laughs> yeah, they haven't met me yet, that's why. They, yes, I hope you're telling them... And then they will know that you're insane. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, most people say that. I don't get it. No, <laughs> no I do actually. Especially my team at work today, but um, anyway, because uh, as we were speaking, we were actually speaking a month in the past and because uh, that's how forward planning we are to get all these episodes ready to be go out and drop so there we go it is true it is true <laughs> now remember if you've enjoyed this week's pieces of eight or indeed liked any episode we've done please do leave a review for us on itunes or wherever you find your podcasts as it means more people can find our episodes and it's always appreciated and talking of finding things you can follow us on twitter at pieces of eighth you can find me at finished zine f-i-n-i-s-h-e-d-z-i-n-e or z if you're in the states of course <laughs> and i am just rebecca geek out because, because you're a geek and you're indeed. out well, uh, yes yes yeah it's true so it always works <laughs> so yeah anyway we'll be back next time with another bbc book and we'll be looking at the fourth release paul leonard's genocide so until next time, I've been Kenny Smith. And I was Rebecca Chapman. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.